0: We're returning this morning to our gospel, or our series, our sermon series through Acts. Uh, We are beginning Acts chapter 15 this morning. We're going to spend a few weeks here in Acts chapter 15. And uh, the better part of this chapter is dealing with the Jerusalem Council. So we'll get into that this week and and remain there uh, next week, Lord willing, as well. Uh, Before we read God's holy and errant infallible word, let us turn to the Lord and ask Him to bless the reading and hearing of His word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts as we now come to your holy word. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, that your Word would go forth in power this day. Lord, give us ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts that are ready to grasp. And Lord, may your Word be planted deep in us, and may it grow and produce fruit in our lives, for we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers... You know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Reading through Acts with any... Honesty has a way of undoing any sort of romantic view that we might have of the early church. Uh, Luke is not shy to put on full display that the church is not only attacked from outside by those wishing to crush this movement of Christ followers, but the church has plenty of conflict from within as well. We've already seen this in Acts chapter 5 in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So the picture that is presented isn't simply a picture of impeccable piety and perfect unity. It isn't a picture of loving fellowship all the time. There is a lot of messiness in the church. And we certainly get a taste of this here in Acts chapter 15. But all praise be to God for what was recorded by Luke through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here and throughout Acts. It's important that we see that conflict can and does occur in the church community. Now, we can see conflict as a bad thing, and certainly it can be a bad thing. It can be a bad thing when the conflict is a result of us in our sinfulness attacking one another when there is gossip and backbiting when there's suspiciousness and selfishness when there's a lack of love and forgiveness and unfortunately this does happen in the church the church is after all a community of sinners Redeemed sinners, but sinners nonetheless. And sometimes we as sinners slip back into our old way of life instead of living into the new way of life. Christ has won for us in his death and resurrection. And we must beware because Satan is constantly seeking to use any means possible to stir up this sort of conflict in the church. He's constantly working to undo the church seeking to destroy what god is redeeming and building not simply from the outside but also from the inside he will use our sin against the church but this can also take the form of sending in those who would undermine god's word and teach false doctrine history has shown this to be a far more effective tool Much of the time in bringing division and conflict in the church. But conflict also occurs in the church as a result of the process of the church growing into the community that God has for her to be. As a church is ever reformed according to God's word. And the reality is that we worship an unchanging God. But we worship an unchanging God in a ever-changing world. It means that we must grow and adapt to meet new challenges that we face in this ever-changing world in order to remain faithful to God's unchanging truth. As the church faces new challenges, there can be disagreement and division about how to proceed. The church, though, at every moment should be seeking to live in greater faithfulness to the gospel gospel, and to bring greater clarity to the gospel in the present context. And even as I think we would all agree that our context is much different than what the early church faced, if God's truth is timeless, then God's word has something to say into our context. Sometimes this is easy to see. Other times it takes a little more work. And sometimes it involves being stretched in our understanding of what it means to be faithful. So sometimes we are comfortable with, what, with needs. Uh, we're, we're comfortable in a way that we need to be disturbed especially when we've been complacent or too conformed to the ways of the world around us. And in this case, conflict actually serves as a catalyst for growth to occur as God transforms us ever more in his image. This means that conflict, although it is rarely pain, painless, can actually be a positive thing. Conflict carries with it a potential for edification. It can be an opportunity for greater faithfulness. In every conflict, there is a possibility for either harm to come to the church or for the church to grow. And thankfully, Luke doesn't try to hide the messiness that was experienced in the early church. We have in Acts 15 an example of conflict. We will find that this is a conflict that was handled in a God-honoring manner which served as a means for positive growth to occur. And if we're willing to spend some time here, there are several lessons that can assist us in growing from these painful moments that we might experience rather than letting them destroy us. So we're going to spend a couple weeks, Lord willing, on this conflict that faced the early church here And our goal is going to be to glean some wisdom from how the church handled this conflict. But we first need to understand the context of what's happening here. Now, we need to understand that this particular conflict arose because of the success of the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas that we've been reading about in the previous couple of chapters We have seen how the Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus Christ in droves and they were being welcomed into the church as they placed faith in Jesus Christ and received Christian baptism. And everything is moving along nicely, but then, as Acts chapter 15 begins, some men arrived in Antioch from Judea. And it seems from verse 24 that we'll get to next week that they came claiming to have some sort of authority from the Jewish Christian church. Nonetheless they threw a monkey wrench into the Gentile inclusion in the church and the issue as it's presented here is whether or not the Gentiles who converted to Christianity needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. You see there was no issue with Gentiles becoming part of the people of God the Old Testament foretold their inclusion the question was what means of incorporation into the believing community did God intend for the Gentiles what means of incorporation into the believing community did God intend for the Gentiles and apparently, there were more than a few from the Jewish Christian community who assumed that they would be incorporated into Israel, the new Israel, in the same way that they themselves had through circumcision. And they might sound odd to us, but the Jewish people had been doing this for generations. This was an important part of their identity, which had been given to them by God as his covenant people. But the issue wasn't simply circumcision. That was a presenting issue here. The bigger issue was whether or not the Gentiles needed to observe all of the law. Again, this is what being members of God's covenant people entailed. This was what they did. They observed the law. They had lived in this manner. It was what had set them apart from the other nations. By the way, we're not talking simply about the Ten Commandments. We're not talking about the moral law. We're talking about the ceremonial law. We're talking about dietary laws, purity laws. We're talking about observing Jewish festivals. We're talking about obedience to the rabbinic interpretation of the moral law. All the things that they had added to the commandments, the Ten Commandments. In other words, the assumption was that the Gentiles needed to become Jewish proselytes in order to be saved. So there was concern that these Gentiles were being welcomed into the community of faith without first becoming Jews. They were being admitted into fellowship by way of baptism without circumcision. It was commitment to Christ without the works of the law. So it was one thing for the Jewish Christians to approve the conversion of Gentiles. It was quite another thing to welcome a Gentile by conversion without circumcision. Now, again, this might all seem very odd or silly to us, but we weren't raised with all of this ingrained into us, into our very identity. We weren't raised with an understanding that circumcision was the sign of the covenant, We should recall here how difficult it was for Peter to even consider sitting and eating with Gentiles back in Acts 10 when he was commanded by God to go to Cornelius. The internal conflict that Peter experienced there is happening here to an even larger degree and on a church-wide level. We have to remember that Christianity was not some different faith at this point. It was a movement happening within Judaism. The Jewish Christians still considered themselves to be Jews. And what we're seeing here in this passage then, in a very real sense, is the growing pains of the early church. She's being stretched in her understanding and comfort level of what faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ looks like. But it also presents the early church with an enormous issue. And I think we immediately recognize what the problem is here. Circumcision is being presented as a, listen, a condition for salvation. What is being said is that it isn't merely faith in Jesus Christ that saves. It is faith plus circumcision it is faith in jesus plus observing all of the jewish law are you following me y'all following me if circumcision was necessary that this meant that faith in jesus was not enough that it was not sufficient for salvation the gentiles must add to faith circumcision into circumcision observance of the law As John Stott comments, the Gentiles must let Moses complete what Jesus had begun and let the law supplement the gospel. And Stott puts his finger on the heart of the issue when he writes, the issue can be clarified by a series of questions. Is the sinner saved by the sheer grace of God in and through Christ crucified? Is the sinner saved in and by the sheer grace of God in and through Christ crucified when he or she simply believes? That is, flees to Jesus for refuge. Has Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, done everything necessary for salvation? Or are we saved partly through the grace of Christ and partly through our own good works and religious performance? is justification being made right with God sola fide by faith alone or through a mixture of faith and works grace and law Jesus and Moses are Gentile believers a sect of Judaism or authentic members of a multinational family so do you see how big this issue is that's facing the church here As Stott says, it is not some Jewish cultural practices which were at stake, but the truth of the gospel and the future of the church. This is a moment in which the church could grow in grace or in which the gospel could be compromised. It's an enormous moment. The gospel is either going to be fully liberated from its Jewish swaddling clause, or it's going to be bound up and diminished. But I hope we have a sense of how uncomfortable this would have been for the Jewish Christians. And I love how Luke presents the response from Paul and Barnabas to these men from Judea. Luke tells us in verse 3 that they had no small dissension and debate with them. Well, of course, they had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas understood them to be threatening the gospel itself. And if we can understand anything concerning this situation from Paul's letter to the Galatians, we can see that Paul was hot with righteous indignation. These men were stirring up a lot of trouble in Galatia where Paul and Barnabas were ministering to the Gentiles. These men were not only creating doubt in the Gentile believers, they were causing division in the church between Jewish and Gentile believers, as even Peter and Barnabas had been persuaded to stop sharing fellowship with the Gentiles. And Paul tells us in his letter to the Galatians that he called Peter out for this hypocrisy. So this was a serious issue, and it wasn't an isolated issue. As soon as Paul and Barnabas get to Jerusalem, are welcomed, share with everyone what God has been doing among the Gentiles, there are those who immediately declare that it's necessary for the Gentiles to be circumcised. So this is a watershed moment in the life of the early church. We need to understand that. But what can we learn from how the church handles conflict here? What are the lessons that we can find here? And there are three that I want to present this morning. Lord willing, I'm going to get to some more next week, but we want to focus on just three for our time remaining this morning. The first lesson is on the importance of seeking the mind of God together as a community. Seeking the mind of God together as a community. What happens as a result of this conflict? A council is called. Paul and Barnabas and others are appointed to go and meet with the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. And the purpose of this council is to clarify the doctrine at the center of the conflict in order to end the controversy and to promote peace within the Christian community. So this is not an individual exercise. It's not one of the apostles simply pontificating to the church as a whole. It was an exercise of the entire community to work out this issue in which there was disagreement, to seek the mind of God together. And we see how the community participated here. Luke Only records for us a few of the comments and only notes a few of the speakers. But we are told in verse 7 that before Peter got up to speak, there had already been much debate. Everyone was having their voices heard. And the entire event stresses to us that um, that the mind of God is discerned in community. Doctrine is worked out in community. This is clearly what the early church believed in practice. It's here; it continued to be the case in church in the church throughout church history. As the church faced other conflicts concerning the essentials of the faith, like the full humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ, the divinity of the Holy Spirit, these doctrines are worked out in community. It's demonstrated here in other places, though, to be biblical wisdom to do these things in community, revealing that God has ordained this as a means by which his will should be known. And we will find in the verses to come that the result, even after much debate, which was no doubt heated at times, was something that seemed good to the council because It was agreed that God had revealed that it was good to him. Now, this doesn't mean that the church councils, that church councils are always without error. Councils can and have erred. Just because something has been discerned in community doesn't mean that it is absolutely correct. We've witnessed in recent history entire denominations fall into apostasy as a result of errant church councils. Our confessional standard, the Westminster Confession of Faith, acknowledges this reality. Therefore, the decisions of church councils throughout history should never carry the same authority as God's word. But at their best, they've helped to clarify the truth declared in God's word word. And despite a council's ability to err, Acts 15 does acknowledge that God's word is best discerned in community and not in isolation. And this is an important lesson for us to hear in our particular context. We live in a society in which there is pervasive individualism, suspicion of what comes out of committees, a distrust of organized religion, And many in this context have determined that they can't trust the church to help rightly interpret Scripture. They've declared that because they have the Holy Spirit, they don't need the church community in which to wrestle with God's Word. They've concluded that they have figured it out all on their own. Granted, there is a lot of groupthink that we recognize as dangerous, but communities honestly wrestling with God's word together and seeking to grow in knowledge and faithfulness together is demonstrated here and in other places in scripture as good and blessed by God to such communities God reveals himself by granting the gift of his Holy Spirit to provide guidance and illumination to his word. And it turns out to be a really good thing for us to be challenged in our understandings and assumptions. Yes, it causes conflict, but it's a catalyst for growth. So think about this. What would have happened if there had been no Paul? The Jewish Christians would have continued in their belief that their version of Christianity was right. And the church would have been much less because of it. The gospel that was proclaimed would have been a shadow of the true gospel. Dearly beloved, Scripture itself reveals that we desperately need one another if we are to rightly know God's word. So let this be an encouragement to us all. We need to study Scripture, discern Scripture in community with one another. And this actually gets to our second lesson, the importance of Scripture in bringing godly resolution to a conflict we see here in acts 15 that if the gospel is to prevail in any conflict then the word of god must prevail we can see the most this most clearly in following the flow of the argument that luke records from peter to barnabas and paul to james We see here that Peter, the first of the three, appealed to God's direct guidance and intervention, right? Peter was remembering his experience with Cornelius and was arguing that God had initiated this mission to the Gentiles. It was God himself who had chosen that the Gentiles should hear the gospel and believe. It was God who had extended salvation to them. And then Peter followed this with some interesting comments. He spoke not of circumcision, but of God's gift of the Holy Spirit. And notice what Peter says here. God gave the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles, just as he did to us Jews. And Peter has made a very subtle but significant move here. Peter didn't say that the Gentiles have been saved like the Jews. He says that we Jews could be saved just like the Gentiles. Do you see what he's done? He stayed away from the idea of circumcision, that the Gentiles have to become like the Jews. He argued instead that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Both are saved by faith alone. In Peter's words, the Holy Spirit has cleansed their hearts by faith. We aren't made clean By rituals. We are cleaned by the blood of Jesus Christ applied to our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Gentiles have been saved apart from being Jewish, in other words. Everyone comes to the family of God in the same way. Jew or Gentile, young or old, rich or poor, whether you have a PhD or no education at all, all are saved solely by the undeserved kindness of a forgiving God in Jesus Christ. All are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing Else needs to be added to this. The blood of Christ is sufficient to wash us clean. Why then would anyone stand in the way of what God was doing by grace? As Peter asks in verse 10, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Now, this is a very good question. Why in the world would they be trying to heap upon others what they themselves were unable to uphold? Peter says here that to insist that the Gentiles keep the law was to impose conditions on believers over and above those which God has required. And it is to stretch his patience and invite his judgment. Next up were Paul and Barnabas. And by this point, the whole assembly, we are told, had fallen silent. Interestingly enough, though, Luke gives very little attention to Paul and Barnabas, simply sharing that whereas Peter had appealed to God's direct guidance and intervention, Paul and Barnabas appealed to God's confirmation of their work through signs and wonders. But Luke didn't need to rehash for us all that Barnabas and Paul had done. We have just spent two chapters on it. So despite how little Luke gives us here, what Paul and Barnabas shared in the council was significant in the beta as a whole. And finally, James. And James spoke. Now, this is Jesus' half-brother, James, but it wasn't his relation to Jesus that provided him with any authority. James has been well attested in church history as being a very pious man. He was very respected for this reason. He was the Jew of all Jews. He was known as James the Just, And it becomes apparent here that while many consider Peter to be the first leader of the church, it was actually James who was the moderator of the assembly. In fact, some have referred to him as the first bishop of Jerusalem. And what did James appeal to? He appealed directly to the word of God. He quoted from the prophets Amos, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, and he quoted these verses to reveal that according to the Old Testament prophets, God's people would consist of both Jews and Gentiles, both of whom would share the messianic blessings, the Gentiles not having become Jews. James says, in effect, God has spoken on this matter God said that he would save the Gentiles now he has done it therefore in my judgment we must not oppose God or the scriptures by making it difficult for the Gentiles to turn to God and that settles the matter Who, after all, is going to argue with God's word, especially when God's word has been confirmed and validated in the experiences of Peter and Paul and Barnabas? The Gentiles don't need anything more than faith in Jesus Christ, to be members of his church. Anyone arguing against them at this point would be willfully ignoring God's word and the clear discernment of the Holy Spirit by way of the council. But hopefully we have seen the outcome of this entire conflict. What was the result of this painful process? The pain of conflict did produce something. Greater unity. And we will see in the verses to come that it is stressed that the council came to a decision about how to move forward that seemed good to them. And more importantly, it seemed good to God. Luke is revealing that there was unity of mind and spirit about the matter as they moved forward from this moment united as one church of Jesus Christ. That is the marvelous thing here. It is through the crucible of conflict that the disharmony that existed as a result of the church growth among Gentiles was sorted out and resolved. A moment of great disagreement and division ended up producing increased unity. There was a new sense of Jews and Gentiles together being the one body of Jesus Christ. To God be all the glory. And unity should be of concern to the church because it was... A concern to Jesus. This is what we find Jesus praying for in his church in the moments before his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. This is what he prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He prays that his church would be one as he and the Father are one. The church's unity gives witness to who God is, gives witness to the power of God at work in and among them there should be a concern for unity in the church but we need to notice something here the concern for unity doesn't mean that issues are simply overlooked or ignored it doesn't mean that doctrinal purity should be compromised in order that there is some sense of peace in the church this is sometimes what happens in churches isn't it Issues arise, but nobody wants to say anything in an effort to avoid conflict at all costs. In an effort not to hurt anyone's feelings, in an effort to maintain peace and prevent division, nothing is said. But brothers and sisters, we need to understand two things. The first is that we are people of truth. We shouldn't let lies exist among us simply to avoid conflict. But the second, and more importantly, there is no concern for unity that dismisses doctrinal purity. I really, really want to stress this point. This is a very important lesson for us here. There have been churches that have ignored issues of doctrinal purity, arguing that unity is the most important thing. And the gospel has been undermined and diminished as a result. But notice that Paul, as well as others, didn't compromise the doctrinal purity here for the sake of unity. They were firm in their battle to protect the gospel at all costs. They held the line, as John Crimmins put it a few Sundays ago. And if we've read Paul's works, then we know that Paul didn't devalue unity in the church. He had some very harsh things to say to those who were creating division in the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that God will destroy those who seek to destroy his church. But James Montgomery Boyce was right when he noted that if the choice was to be between the truth of the gospel and harmony in the church, then Paul was for the truth of the gospel. As Boyce stated, the church can live with disharmony. It is unfortunate when it occurs, of course. We do not want it we try to avoid it when we can but we can live with it what we cannot live with is the destruction of the gospel so Paul made every effort to preserve it the fact of the matter is that the church can't truly be the church if she is allowing false teaching to creep in and exist within her walls And the church ceases to be the church if she allows the gospel message to be compromised. There is no true unity or peace without doctrinal purity. So unity doesn't mean that we are just showing up and gathering together in the same place on Sunday morning. Unity in scripture is spiritual as well as physical. But brothers and sisters, praise be to God that the church at this moment held the line. That the gospel was protected. But the question for us is how about us? Will we hold the line? Will we fight for the truth of the gospel? Will we proclaim boldly that salvation comes by faith alone? That it is by God's grace alone. That it is in Jesus Christ alone that it is to God's glory alone. Will we uphold these truths? I pray that we will. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving within your holy word these moments in church history where there was conflict. Lord, we pray that we would learn lessons from them. We would learn how to handle conflict within our own time, in our own context. And Lord, I pray that we would stand firm as the church did here in Jerusalem. We would profess that nothing needs to be added to the work of Jesus Christ, that his blood alone is sufficient for our salvation. Lord, I pray that we would learn to rest in him. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe.